This is an ABC podcast. Come on, let's go. We're going to school in a number of languages, including Japanese. Arabic. And Armenian. Hello, Miyuki Okiranta here. This is Earshot, and this is episode three of Tongue Tied and Fluent, our series about multilingualism in Australia. Last time, we met multilingual families and heard how bringing up children in more than one language can have its challenges. Anna, and I'm eight years old. So Anna, tell us about the times where you've come to Spain with your mum and dad and what's it like being over there and hearing Spanish spoken around you? It's weird because it's not the language that I speak. And I used to speak to her in Spanish. There was a point when she said, I don't want you to speak in Spanish anymore to me. And so there's this kind of resistance that I've always been afraid to force it on her and her having a reverse reaction to it. Well, I like speaking English because I know what the words are. What about Italian? I speak Italian at school and it's really fun and I know some words. Today, Sheila Pham and Masako Fukui are exploring how schools contribute to multilingual Australia. Is our education system doing a good enough job of teaching new languages? And what about maintaining the languages already in the community? <laughs> um, then we want... That's the only time we'd use it. So to, We're now with Anna and her Spanish-speaking parents, Elena and Josh. Elena's mother tongue is Spanish. Josh learned Spanish as an adult. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> so what school are you sending Anna to? She goes to international grammar school. They have Italian, French, German and Japanese. And when they get to high school, they can choose a second language. We've made a very conscious effort to send Anna to a school where she does a second language since the age of three. So she does 80 minutes a day, which is more than many other people do, especially in Australia, where it's quite insular. Growing up in Europe is much easier to pick up languages. My name is Sue Palmer. I'm a Japanese teacher at Balgala Heights Public School. I've been teaching here for the last 15 years. Because it's 30 minutes once a week, it's not enough to really become fluent in a language. To learn a language, it has to be something which is happening around you all the time. The program that we have at the school is an integrative uh, language program, so um, it's me reinforcing much of the learning that's happening across the curriculum. I might be doing a little PE with the children, but where we're practising counting. Seven is? Na, 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 eight. Is a rabbit. We do creative arts as well. We've created recently a dharma. It comes from the Buddhist religion, a little New Year character that you purchase at the beginning of the year, which is part of Japanese culture. You fall down seven times and you get back up eight. In Japanese culture, it's called nanakorobi yaoki. Yeah, because the dharma is round and it kind it's of round, pops back up. up. 
This is about building resilience in your children and saying to the children, it doesn't matter what happens to you, every single one of us will have our down days. Sue Palmer seems like a dedicated and gifted teacher. Her method's what's called content language and integrated learning. The Australian linguist Joseph Lobianco talks a lot about it, where the subject of the class isn't the language, but other subjects like maths, art and science. So you're actually teaching them not just language, because there is the school of thought, I think Joseph Lobianco says, that language teaching has no content as oh. such, but it's actually teaching through things like maths or other things Absolutely. that children learn. Yes. Absolutely. I, I really do think that everything else is taught in isolation, but through language you can really make those connections. And I'm constantly referring, oh, this is a part of what you've been doing in English, or this is like maths, isn't it? Because they learn time. We do time in Japanese as well. So what about English? Can you give me an example of that that you might translate into the Japanese classroom? The Hungry Caterpillar, a well-known book. And there is a, a song. So we're doing Days of the Week, so it, that's when we do it, when we're learning about Days of the Week. So it goes, Nichiobi, Nichiobi, Look, the kids really adore Sue. They yell out, Konnichiwa, from across the playground when they see her. Her method's not new. Some primary schools, mainly in Victoria, use it too. But what would be great is if all teachers had a love of language like Sue. Despite the fact that we are a multilingual country, we're just not really good at teaching kids languages at school. We've had 70 policies, reports, reviews in the last 40 years, all recommending languages, but we come lowest of all OECD countries in the provision and uptake of languages. And the basic problem is that languages are not a part of the core curriculum in practically every state. That's Professor of Education at Sydney University, Ken Cruikshank, who shared with us some pretty dismal stats. For example, in New South Wales today, less than 10% of students study languages in their final years of high school. Whereas in the 1950s... Something like 40% of students did languages for their final year of schooling. But it was mainly in the private schools, kids studied French, Latin, the traditional languages. Then in the 1970s, it was languages for all. And so up until the year 2000, the number of students studying languages increased by about 500%. And that's when they brought in Indonesian and Japanese and a wider range of languages, which was really good. Sophia's Japanese is more advanced than her classmates because she has a parent who speaks Japanese to her at home. But the irony is, Sophia may be better off not continuing with Japanese in high school. She's likely to be penalised because of her Japanese heritage. There was a backlash against community languages. In the late 1990s, people were complaining that children of migrants had an unfair advantage. So what happened is that languages disappeared in government, Catholic, the poorer schools. And this affected community languages most of all. They became marginalised. Nowadays, you only see strong language programmes in independent, selective, the better-off schools. 
and here's something curious and unique to New South Wales. Kids from Korean, Chinese, Indonesian and Japanese backgrounds are seen as having an even greater unfair advantage. These four languages were once considered to be key to Australia's economic future, yet students from precisely these backgrounds are often not allowed to study the same language subject as other students because of their ethnicity. Parents were rightly horrified at this because in some ways it's racism. Why those four languages doesn't happen with French or German, right? No, it doesn't. And in some ways, having fluency in French is prestige. Having fluency in Chinese and Japanese is seen as competition. Don't ask me why. But I thought Japanese was one of the prestige languages now. The languages are prestige, but the speakers of those languages are not. That's where the discrimination is. (laughs) It's very curious. So it's an Asian thing. They just found out where they born, where their parents born, where their grandparents and great-grandparents born. We visited Golston College, an independent Armenian bilingual school on the outskirts of Sydney. With about 330 students from kindy to year 12, it's a pretty tight-knit school. And Golston College is an important institution in the Armenian community which is why we were surprised to meet a few kids from non-Armenian backgrounds enrolled at the school and speaking Armenian. Correct, yes. So I have Ayatna, that's from Venezuela, and I have Mateo from Colombo. Um, and I also have a, a student in year six as well, that he's from Venezuela as well, Samuel. Ayatna has been with us for uh, almost five years. Almost five years. He, she joined us in year, five, year one. And Samuel has been with me since year five. Do your families have any connection to Armenia? Uh, no, we just decided to join this school to learn another language. Wow. wow. Interesting. So you speak Spanish at home? Yes. So you speak three languages, or you're learning a third language now? Yeah, correct, yes. <laughs> because obviously they do English in their main classes, yeah. How many hours of, of Armenian do they do a week? They have a period every day. We um, we were supposed to do this, a banner of what we sh- should say, and I wrote, Armenians want their land back, and Ararat back, which is the mountain that is unfortunately now in Turkey. In Spanish, Armenios quieren su, su tierra de vuelto, is montaña de vuelto. Impressive. And then can you read that in Armenian, what you wrote there, the same thing? Hayere paganchu menhed irens jogere yev ararada. Do you have a preference with the Eastern and Western dialect when you hear it? Can you tell? Well, I can tell. My name is Edward Demergin. I'm principal of Golson College and we've been here for over 25 years. When I went through my schooling experience, it was quite difficult. You've got that Armenian background 
and then you go to an English school where you feel very different and you're kind of stuck between the two worlds. Uh, I don't see that struggle with our students. Of course, there's also that notion that Darmeen School can be quite closed in regards to their experiences, but we only have to have a look at when our students graduate, how active they are within the wider community, which uh, takes away that argument. Also, we noticed that there are students who, are, who actually aren't from Armenian backgrounds, so, and it's really interesting that they're quite happy to come here to learn Armenian and become part of the community here as well. So to me, that kind of shows a bit of openness, which I personally didn't expect coming here. Yeah, the school has changed. Our numbers have increased significantly. Uh, we've also got a fairly large intake of refugees from Syria. So we've got quite a diverse mix of students. But one thing which is important to us is that community feel. I know every student, I know every family, I think Today, that can be quite rare. What's this? Aram Manukian, founder of the Republic of Armenia, erected on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the Republic of Armenia. So history is such a big part of this school. Yeah, I mean, even in a lesson that we saw today, all the students were asked to write their family tree as a way of talking about the genocide and where the and where the diaspora lives around the world. And, and that story they were reading was about the genocide. So it's pretty heavy for that. The strong emphasis on the Armenian genocide in classrooms was intriguing. The genocide happened more than 100 years ago when the Ottoman Empire expelled and killed more than one and a half million Armenians. But I couldn't help envying these kids because of what my own family went through with the Vietnam War. We couldn't talk to anyone about it at school. And also thinking how hard it was for me and my brother to be the only Vietnamese kids at school. The survivors of the genocide who were sent all over the world, they are still struggling with the same problem to remain Armenians. That's Aramen Bikarian. In the 1960s, he helped establish the Australian chapter of the Armenian Cultural and Educational Association Hamas Kain, which runs Golston College. For an Armenian to remain Armenian, he needs to be in Armenia. Armenia will keep him Armenian. The only alternative to remaining Armenian who is not on his homeland is his language, because it is the language that keeps the Armenians in touch with their roots, aware of their identity. That is one of the reasons for us to insist on having a language. Can I ask your wife? Yeah? Because you were at home with your three boys and you were the one that taught your children the language. It all started with my father. He had lost his Armenian language because he was forced to forget it. But eventually he mastered Armenian. He passed it on to me, not, not that I speak as good as him, and it's my duty to pass it on to my children. Our language and our religion, these are the two things that keep us going. So you said you don't speak Armenian as well as your father. I don't think your sons speak as well as you. So your grandkids will be even less. How does that... It hurts. <laughs> it hurts very much. But as long as they grow up knowing that their ancestors were Armenians and they've gone through 
hard times, I'll be happy. Multiculturalism is like a mosaic and all the cultures that are in Australia make up one Australia. So if there is no language, these minority groups could dissolve away. And that's what multicultural doesn't want. I agree with our men. Language does contribute to a more resilient multiculturalism. But I don't think that's an idea that's well understood. And it's rare for parents to send their kids to a school based around a culture they're not directly connected to. So I was pretty surprised to meet someone from a non-Armenian background at Goulston College. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised. We always feel like we need to justify the teaching of languages in schools, that we should learn Asian languages because our economic future is tied to Asia, or that another language is good for the brain. But education policies based on possible outcomes just haven't worked out. We don't ever feel the need to justify the value of reading books or playing sports in the same way, do we? Most of us don't become elite athletes or writers, but we understand the intrinsic value of reading and sport. Well, neural benefits and future job opportunities are both reasonable motivations for starting a language. But yes, I agree, we're missing the whole point if that's the focus of language education. Because the reality is we're a multilingual country and multicultural. Australians are mostly on board now with multiculturalism, but we're nowhere near there yet with multilingualism. So at the moment, language learning in schools is still constructed as a problem. So we know now that if you come from an English-speaking background, there's only about one in 20 chance that you will develop a second language to year 12. If you come to school with a language, five out of six chances you're going to lose that language by the time you get to year 12. It's so stupid, wasting resources that are there in the community. To me, schooling is something that should build on what the children bring. So I've heard multilingual kids go to school to become monolingual. So that's actually a reality already. It is a reality at the moment. I think one of the main issues in Australia that's different to many countries is that Australia is so multilingual and multicultural. And the question is, how can you credit and take advantage of the huge resources in the community? Something like 21% of students enter school with a language in addition to English. 50% of Australians are migrants or the children of migrants. What do you do about it? Okay, so who's doing a good job of teaching languages in Australia? I've done a lot of work with the community languages schools. There's about 100,000 students across Australia learning their language outside the um, mainstream schools on weekends after school days. Something like 7,000 teachers, 64 different languages. Now, if we can look at improving and accrediting the learning in those schools, it goes a long way to having languages develop everywhere. But they're mostly volunteers, right? They're mums, community members, sometimes dads, uh, <laughs> who come in from the love of teaching that language. That's Muhammad al Quda who runs an Arabic language class in Newcastle, New South Wales, with his wife Allah. They migrated from Jordan more than 10 years ago, and they started teaching Arabic to their three kids at home. But they soon realised that there was a need in the community for these weekend classes. There are about 20 kids from kindy to high school here today, 
Australia is one of the few countries that publicly funds these language classes, which might make up for the inadequacies of our school system. Saturday and Sunday is their holidays, their fun day. So it's very hard to attract the kids to come to, to learn something. It's for them, it's extra. So we make it more fun in the school. My wife, she has experienced teaching kids for 10 years overseas in Australia. So she tries her best to make it fun class. We teach them language, we teach them uh, geographic, uh, history, there's uh, some singing, some uh, arts, uh, crafting. It's a constantly talking to them in Arabic. Every opportunity you get, you have try to build their vocabulary. Yes, that's it. I understand that you didn't come to Australia thinking you would start an Arabic school. This was not your intention. Yeah, that's you came, right. Yes. You came here to do a master's degree yeah, in nursing. That's right. You initially began in a mosque. It's an Islamic center. There's nothing in the mosque. They, they actually, I lost some students because they think they want a proper school. And yeah, so we moved to the public school and we have people who are not Muslim in the, in the, in the school. So was that important to you that you attracted students from all kinds of backgrounds? I'm teaching the language. I'm not. It has nothing to do with the with the religion. It's I'm Muslim and it's my religion. But back home we are mixed between Muslim, Christians, Jewish, different uh, religion backgrounds. So they they have the right to come to my school. But actually, it's quite progressive of you, really, to think like this in Australia because I think the history of the way that the Saturday schools were set up in the Arabic community they were often tied to sort of religious organisations. And I guess ultimately we can't really separate the language completely from religion. It's very influenced yeah. because I guess in everyday Arabic, um, when people speak it, it's often kind of infused with religious ideas. Yes. Like yeah. in Salaam Alaikum. Yes. Uh, although it's an Islamic thing, it's a part of the culture. You can't separate it. Back home, Christians, Jewish, Muslims, they still use the same Salaamu Alaikum, even if you are Muslim or not Muslim, you still use Salaamu Alaikum. You said that you don't really need to or you don't want to learn Spanish, but the last time you were in Spain, were there some words that you liked or you learned, like that you would hear people yeah, say? I understood some words and that's really it and I can't really make conversations. What about food words? Like when you're on there, like do you know a lot of the words for yeah, food? I know one sentence in Spanish word. Que hay de postre? Which means what's for dessert. Oh. And I asked that every meal. Do you remember when Anna's dad, Josh, was telling us about his language education? Three years of German and four years of French in high school. I didn't have one word of it. Not one word. And I couldn't have cared less. And I couldn't have cared less at year eight or year 10 or when I was 26. Didn't make any difference to me. Meeting Elena and then making the effort to learn the language or at least let it sink in was kind of out of character for me. You know, I mean, it would be great for Anna to be able to grow up and our daughter to speak 
two or three languages, but you know, it's not like some kind of super secret power that people are going to have forever and ever and have it better over everyone else. I agree with Josh to an extent. Speaking another language isn't a superpower. But don't you think his exposure to French and German helped him develop an openness to languages that's helped him learn Spanish later in life? No, I think it's the opposite. People are often scarred by their experiences at school. So if they manage to learn a language later in life, it's in spite of their schooling. But there are also individual differences. Like, I'm not good at languages like you. Well, I don't know if I'm actually good at languages so much as I don't have a fear of them, which a lot of people seem to have, especially monolingual English speakers. And I also don't have the need to have everything translated into English. For example, my friend in Japan recently gave me an omomori for safe birth. The English translation is lucky charm, but calling it that just sounds really crappy. It is crappy. Yeah, which is why I'm calling it an omomori. Yeah, I like that, Sheila. Because omomori are only available in Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples, and they're very specific. Omomori for safe childbirth, protection from car accidents, even passing exams. Omomori comes from the word mamoru, which means to protect. And it's a gorgeous gift your friend gave you because through the omamori, your friend's asking the gods to protect you through childbirth. So just in trying to understand one word, you already have access into Japanese spirituality and customs and a different worldview. And that's why I think Japanese teacher Supama is an enlightened educator. Because under the guise of teaching her students a language, I think she's really challenging them to embrace difference. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think if children develop a love of language, that's part of an issue really we have when starting languages at high school. They're already disengaged from learning, but if they're learning languages naturally, connecting with everything around them, they have a completely different attitude to language learning and culture. They're much more understanding, much more aware of themselves as well, which I think that's what I'm trying to do. If you can give them an experience which really engages and they love, for example, we've been doing sumo wrestling. Now, the reason I've done sumo wrestling is it's like trying to get the children to um, develop their intercultural capabilities, like really appreciating and understanding difference and traditions. And recently when we did the sumo, I got them to watch a movie, Sumo Do, Sumo Don't. But that movie had some quite different cultural aspects to it in certain ways and um, I had a parent complain because it was a PG movie and of course they're wearing mawashi and they're exposing their buttocks and some of the children didn't were laughing about that and I got quite upset by the fact that they were so being so culturally insensitive and you know and they're kids and I get that it wasn't anything I felt because I'm, I'm aware of Japanese culture you know in Japan it's na- nakedness and it's not an issue So we had a very frank and open conversation. I said to them, look, if anyone was offended, I'm very sorry, but I want you to understand why I think this movie was important. So we had a really deep conversation about that, more of a high order type thinking, you know, in terms of where we are in culture and what our values are. And that was extremely valuable for us. Tongue-tied and fluent was produced by Masako Fukui and Sheila Pham. The sound engineer was Andre Shabanov. Sayonara.
Next up, we'll be exploring language loss and revival through the generations. You've been listening to Earshot. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.